Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Um, so this is our Thrive Teaching Series, Habits of Grace. Silence of Solitude is what we're going to talk about this weekend. So thus far we've talked about community, the importance of community, then Bible study, and then we talked about meditation, prayer, and we talked about fasting last week. I just wanted to add a little bit uh, to what has already been said. In fact, uh, Scott wanted me to uh, make sure you understood something. He forgot something during the announcements. But I challenged you to do some fasting and to ask God two things. One, what is my next step in, in full devotion to you? And then, and then also to ask him what role you would play in our raising funds so that we can build out the rest of this facility. And he wanted me to mention to you, convert the chart on the back to one year as opposed to three years. And so we've already been into this uh, campaign for about two years. And so convert it to one year. It'll just be the next year that you would be giving or if you want to give one lump sum. But thank you for considering that. And uh, we're talking about silence and solitude. Grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along part of the intro there. Also, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, second book into the New Testament. Mark chapter 1. We'll look at verses 35 through 39. That's one of our texts. We've got two more also. And uh, you can see there on your notes, we've got Psalm 4610. And then we have 2 Corinthians 318 is where we're headed this morning. And so take a look at your sermon notes, part of the intro. It is unhealthy to always want people around and unhealthy to rarely want them around, okay? Does that make sense? So <laughs> all of us are inclined to one extreme or the other. So you kind of need to know what extreme you, you gravitate towards. I kind of go between the two, okay? Sometimes I just like, oh, I've had enough with people. I just need some time alone for at least four years, <laughs> or, or maybe longer, but that, that's, that's weird if you do that, okay? So you gotta balance it, and so uh, without solitude, we are active but shallow. Without fellowship, we can be deep but stagnant. So Christ-likeness requires both. So there should be a combination of both of this, where we're in fellowship and in community, and then you also need to have that time alone in silence and solitude. Here's my thesis statement for this weekend's message. Silence and solitude is learning how to take a break from the chaos of life to behold the glory of Christ and become whole. In fact, I'm convinced that that's how you become whole, is by learning how to behold the glory of Christ. Now, let me ask you this by show of hands. How many need to take a break from the chaos of life? And we all do. I mean, this, this is a one crazy, chaotic life. So we've got to learn how to balance that. Our text, our first text is going to help us with that, why it's important, and then we're going to talk about how to do it. But before we do that, let's, let's spend some, uh, you did some meditating earlier, let's do some silence, and we'll do some silence at the end. You can see we've got communion here this morning. And so let's begin with just a moment of silence, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a look at this text and unpack these notes. Just bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. So Father God tells us in Psalm 32 that you are our hiding place. 
You preserve us from trouble and you surround us with songs of deliverance. Set us free from our addiction to noise and hurry so that we can learn to hear your still, small voice. Help us to see that it is not the accomplishments that we achieve, but, but the people we become, the people that you want us to be, and, and that our circumstances, help us to see that our circumstances matter far less to our happiness than we think. It is, it is the health of our inner life, our heart and our soul that makes our life, heaven or hell. That when we give priority to our outer life over and above our inner life, our inner life becomes dark and scary. So teach us, teach us how to go into the inner rooms of our heart and see clearly what is there and deal with it by beholding your beauty and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... And man, take a look at this text. So uh, why is it important? We're going to first of all read Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. By the way, this is, uh, just to give you a little context here, this is after one of Jesus' busiest days of his ministry life. I want you to take note of what he does early the next morning. It says, verse 35, chapter 1 of Mark, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed, silence and solitude. And you'd have thought, that would have been a morning I would have slept in, okay, after a real busy ministry day like that. But you guys know this, that all the sleep in the world can't, can't cure the ails of our soul. There's a, there's a soul care that needs to take place that you could get 12 hours a night, seven days a week, and still never meet that need. Does that make sense? How many have ever gone on a vacation before and you come back exhausted from the vacation? Or you've gotten a good night of sleep and you wake up and you're still exhausted because there is a soul care. There's something deep within our soul and our heart that we need to take care of. Now, sleep is part of that, and diet and exercise and all those things, that's all part of that, but, but there's, we're talking here about our souls, we're talking about our hearts, and that's what Jesus is doing. And I want you to take note of, of the urgency of the people around him. So he's, he's gone away to a desolate place, silent solitude, and notice this, and Simon, who's Simon, anybody? Peter, okay, so Peter and those who were with him searched for him, so they wake up, where's Jesus? They're, oh, they're in a panic, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. I love, I love the urgency of that, but I want you to see how cool, calm, and collected Jesus is here. I mean, he's just like, he's, his response. So they, they have this sense of urgency. Everybody is looking for you. Everybody needs you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns. Sounds like he just said no to them, didn't it? He's just basically saying, no, okay, this is what we need to do. I'm not going back there. We're going to go on ahead. He's he's, going to show us really how to have healthy boundaries. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So first of all, why is it important? Here's your first two fill in the blanks on your notes. Intimacy with God, silence and solitude will make or break your impact in this world. Do you think that Jesus certainly had the greatest impact of anybody in this world? To say the least, 
Yes, absolutely. He's going to show us how to do that, but he's balancing his life. So intimacy with God, silence and solitude will make or break your impact in this world. Your life is going to either be more and more conformed to this world or be transformed by God's word. We know that based on Romans 12, 2, also Psalm 1, 1 through 6. We talked about that a few weeks ago on, on meditation. My public life is only as strong as my private life. And if we believe the creator of the universe really loves us, if you really believe that the creator of the universe really loves you, and it's not just a concept, but it becomes a reality in your times of silence and solitude, it should make a major difference in your life emotionally. It will make us emotionally unshakable in the face of criticism, suffering, and even death. If the love of God for you is not just a concept but a reality and the way you drive it down into your heart is obviously through silence and solitude, through this, this devotion, devotional time alone with God. Our doctrinal soundness, what we believe about God must be accompanied by heart experience or it will eventually lead to nominal Christianity and ultimately to, to non-belief. Are you experiencing your theology? I mean, it's one thing to say that God loves me, he's in control of my circumstances, and he knows what's best for me, but do you really believe that? Or are you just saying that? You can have a said faith, but do you have a real faith? Jesus is spending time with the Father so that the reality of, of the Father in his life makes a difference in how he responds to life. Here's the next one. Intimacy with God will give us better boundaries and greater balance between silence and solitude, noise and community. So intimacy with God will give us better boundaries with greater balance between silence and solitude, noise and community. Here's the boundaries. So if you have God's approval, and you see this, if you have God's approval, you don't need to fear the disapproval of others. Did you see the disapproval of the disciples here? If you have his approval, you don't need to worry about the disapproval of others if you're doing what God wants you to do. But you've got to spend time with God to, to reinforce that, so then, therefore, you're able to have the good, healthy boundaries. You can say no. And even if people try to control you or manipulate you, you can, you can say no. And then uh, for balance, so he has boundaries that gives him greater balance. And so let's talk about balance just for a moment. To violate the God-ordained rhythm of rest and work, solitude and community will lead to chaos. Now, you don't usually see that until you start getting older like me, okay? But when you're young, it seems like you could, I remember when I was dating my bride, uh, I mean, we would stay up all hours of the night and then get up and work all day and then do it the next night. Isn't that crazy? And, uh, but that makes you old really fast, okay? It does. After a while, you realize, I gotta get more sleep. Can't keep doing that. But you, I mean, for some reason, when you're young, you, can, you feel like you can do that. You can burn the candle at both ends, you know, and you can do all kinds of crazy things, but eventually, it will catch up to you. And it brings chaos. One of the things that I've noticed, I tend to be a, a workaholic, that's one of my idols, one of my things, a performance junkie. And so right after the first of the year, like this, this year, 
I got to the point when I hit June, I was pretty burnt out. So I had to take a little bit of extra time off this last summer. I took a couple weekends off before I actually went on vacation. I had to take a vacation before I went on vacation. <laughs> because I was, I was wrung out. But it was because I didn't pace myself up to that point. And so it's going to lead to chaos. If you're not balancing your life, if you, ever, if you kind of look at your stress level and it's peaking out a little bit, it's probably you're not balancing your life very well. You've got to know where the edge is. Where's the cliff? You don't wait until you're hanging off the cliff or someone pushes you off the cliff. You've got to be in control and kind of watch your, your emotional well-being. Here's, here's the next thing. Intimacy with God will give us greater balance between grace and truth. So intimacy with God, silence and solitude, will make or break our impact in this world. Intimacy with God will give us great, uh, better boundaries with, with greater balance between solitude and noise. But intimacy with God will give us greater balance between grace and truth. See, really, so my interaction with God should be defined as grace and truth, love and truth. So I'm hearing and experiencing his love, and he's also speaking truth to me, but I'm also doing the same to him. I'm opening my heart to him. I'm being truthful and open and honest to him and, and giving him my love. But then also I should be doing that horizontally in my relationships. John 17, 15 through 18, Jesus told us, he prayed for us, in fact, he wanted us to be in the world but not of the world, yeah. And what he's talking about there, that's a balance between uh, truth and grace and the impact that we can have in this world. Truth minus grace. So by the way, we all tend to gravitate towards one or the other. Either truth, we're all truth and no grace, or all grace and no truth. You even see churches like that, and we need to be a church and a people that are balanced between both of these. Truth minus grace is that you have a message without an audience. That's truth. You kind of push everybody away from you. Grace minus truth, you have an audience without a message. In Luke 7, 34, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Ephesians 4, 15, we need both grace and truth to grow and mature. So like a surgeon, true friends... True friends only cut you in order to heal you, not to, not to harm you, that's the truth, but they will use plenty of anesthesia, that's grace. So as you get close to folks in, in, in your marriage relationships or relationships in general, small groups, not only does that happen in our relationship with God, but with one another. Yeah, does it hurt sometimes when my wife speaks truth to me? Yes terribly painful, and yet it's, it's in the context of, of her love for me, and sometimes she has to reinforce her love to me so that I will hear the truth more clearly and, and not respond with, uh, by defensiveness, and so our Savior does the same for us. Jesus sees you as you are, accepts you as you are, loves you as you are, but through his truth, he doesn't leave you as you are. He will bring change to your life, but it will always be in the context of his grace, and he will speak truth to you. And so that's all part of the change that it brings in our lives, the spending time with him. And so here's what we need to do. So this is the, why is it important, silence and solitude? So what you need to do is you need to divert daily, and maybe even throughout that day. There should be times that sometimes when I'm getting stressed out, I just need to go take a 15-minute break and just go, okay, I need to get recentered here. Okay, where's my head? Where am I thinking? And so you need to divert daily. It might be multiple times throughout the day. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually for silence 
in solitude with God in Bible study, meditation, prayer, maybe even some fasting, just to connect with God. If you don't plan for daily, weekly, annual times of silence and solitude with God, your crazy, busy schedule will rush in to, you, to fill your time like water into the Titanic. It's going to bring you down. It's going to eventually bring chaos into your life. Now, I know that some of you, and we have a, what I love about our, our church family is we have a lot of young families with a whole lot of kids. And so immediately some of you are saying, how am I going to do that with a house full of kids? How many are thinking with a house full of kids, yeah, how can I have silence and solitude with all this chaos? And uh, Home Depot, duct tape and rope. Okay, so... uh, So that's why, one of the reasons why uh, we put our kids to bed at two o'clock in the afternoon for night, night, we locked them in the room, and we built built their rooms in such a way where we could lock them in, and it was just padded, and it was, no, I'm joking. I mean, so, so what you have to do is, some of my suggestion here would be trade off daily responsibilities with your spouse, or trade off daily responsibilities with someone in your small group. Just call up your small group and say, hey, here's my kids for the next three months. Please. Yes, so, so just be creative with, with whatever you're doing. And uh, trade off, but you need it. You desperately need that. My wife would do that from time to time. She would say, uh, man, I need a break for a couple years, you know, kind of. And, uh, but she wouldn't stay long because most women don't trust their husbands, do they, huh? <laughs> Especially around football season. The dude's going to be watching a football game and the kids are going to destroy the house or something along those lines. How many women know what I'm talking about? Okay. So uh, I was glad that she could trust me for very long with the kids, okay? I appreciated that because I... But I would give her a break from time to time. She'd give me a break from time to time. And so you need to do that. So let's talk about how do we do it. So you need to divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. You need to take some time. You need to, and so what does that look like? How do we make that connection with God? Two words, be still and behold. Those are the two things you need to do. Be still and behold. Say those words with me. Be still and behold. Let's do it again. Be still and behold. Turn to the person next to you and say, be still and behold. That's what you need to do in silence and solitude. So here's the first one, Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. So I love this from the message. You've heard me quote it many times before. The message puts it this way. Step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. I love that. So what does it mean to be still? By the way, the context of that is uh, catastrophic. When you read that Psalm 46, it's like tsunamis and earthquakes and you know, uh, atomic bombs, you know, it's just, it's uh, nuclear bombs going off. And it's almost also too, not just that, but almost something cataclysmic among nations. And he says, hey, be still. Be still and know that I am God. So the be still here means not to be 
inordinately anxious, angry, or depressed, you've got to know how to go into the inner rooms of your heart and see clearly what is there and deal with it. You've got to learn how to be fully in the dot. What's that? What's fully in the dot? Okay, okay. So, you know that there's a sale going on in a store at Arrowhead Mall. So you show up in the main entrance and you walk in there and then there's this map because you don't know where the store is. So you look on the map and there's this big red dot and on that red dot it says you are here. You are here. So you got to know where you are before you know where you need to go. So you need to be fully in the dot and you need to stop for a minute and say, okay, this is where we are. This is where I am. And now this is where I need to go. Okay, we need to go up here and up a uh, flight of stairs. And then over here, it's on this north side or the south side or whatever and kind of work your way there. You need to know where you are before you try to get to where you should be. And, and what this is, is it's tuning into what is going on inside of you, your feelings, your thoughts, your struggles, and telling God about it with no pretense. If you'll be real with God, God will be real with you. Now, there, there's certainly, uh, certainly a lot the Bible says about that. Remember in uh, the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve, God comes back into the garden, and Adam and Eve are nowhere to be found. And so God says, where are you? Now, you guys know that an omniscient God, when he asks, where are you, it's not for his sake, it was for their sake. You guys understand that? Because he knew where they were. But when God comes in and says, where are you, he's asking, no, do you know where you are? Do you know what's going on in your own life? Here's another uh, a good cross-reference here of what we're talking about as far as learning to be still. Proverbs 25 Chapter 20, verse 5, it says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. So there's a depth within our hearts, and sometimes we just need a good friend that will help kind of draw that out, or a good counselor, or a good small group. They start asking us questions, and before long, we're kind of getting in touch with, yeah, I guess I am more stressed out than I thought. Yeah, I am struggling with that. A lot of times we're not even in touch with that. Sometimes we need just a friend to help draw that out of us. And we also need God's word. Hebrews 4.12, it talks about God's word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And as you work through that verse, it says God's word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So here's some things that we need to do to be still before we, we know that, I, that he is God, before we take a long, loving look at God, which would be the behold part of that, and we'll move to that uh, in a minute, but here, look at this. So recognizing, naming, and managing my emotions. So that would be one of those things. So part of being still, so be still means not to be inordinately anxious, angry, or depressed. Be still. Recognizing, naming, and managing my emotions. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So what kind of a person are you? How do you deal with your anger? Are you open in your aggression? Or are you passive in your aggression? You need to know that. You need to kind of watch how you're dealing with your anger because it can kind of stockpile. Here's the next one, being aware of how my past impacts my present. So our anger is a response to sometimes the hits that we take in life. And so how do you manage that? And he tells us in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, hey, life doesn't go the way we want it to go. People hurt us and offend us and do all kinds of things to us. But the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
And then it says, do not give the devil a foothold. Because one of the ways that the devil gets a foothold in our life better than any other way is by our mismanaged anger and not dealing with the hurts in our lives. They will come back to haunt us. And not only that, we stockpile that stuff over time and it creates this bitterness within our heart. It becomes like a poison, like a cancer that eats away at us. That's why he tells us in Hebrews 12, 15, he says, don't miss the grace of God and let a bitter root grow up in your heart and cause trouble and defile many. And so that's, bitterness is just from unresolved uh, junk in your life and hits that you've taken in your life. And so that's part of this being still. You're kind of processing, you're looking at this, and then you're breaking free, learning to break free from my habits, habits, and hang-ups. Hurts, habits, and hang-ups. I always, one of the things I enjoy about small groups and hanging out with other Christians is that from time to time you'll come across somebody that, that acts as though they have it all together, Okay. And uh, they, they come off like they're holier than thou, terribly self-righteous. Isn't that fun having somebody in your small group that's like that? It's just, uh, and so what I always like to remind them of is this verse here, because when they start acting like, well, I don't have any problems, I don't have all kind of problems like you guys have, it's like, uh, yeah, you do. Uh, you just don't see them as well as we can see them, okay? We can see ours and we can really see yours. But uh, I like to throw this verse out there too on 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It says, if we, if we think that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's one thing to be deceived by others. It's even much more uh, difficult and much worse to be deceived by yourself. That's what it's saying. You claim to be without sin. You think you have it all together. He's saying, no, you don't. You're self-deceived. You're just deceived. And he says, but if we confess our sins, agreeing with God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all. That's part of that, breaking free from hurts, habits, and hangups. And then the next one is identifying and replacing counterfeit gods. This is big. This is probably the most important as we kind of work through this because this is the root cause of, of a lot of our, our negative emotions, dealing with our past hurts, breaking free from hurts, habits, and hangups. So identifying and replacing counterfeit gods, the reordering of our loves, this is at the root of all of our problems, disordered loves. And I gave you a number of verses there to show you that. But how do you identify your, your idols? By the way, we all have idols. We all have counterfeit gods that we struggle with. So how do you identify them? Well, let me ask you this. What do you daydream about? What do you do in your solitude? Because what, that will begin to reveal to you what's most important to you. How about this? What makes you most anxious? What do you get angry about? What do you get anxious about? See, those, oftentimes when you see anxiety, your anxiety level pegging, it's because you have a collapsing counterfeit God. There's something that's real important to you that is collapsing before you. That's why you have this extreme anxiety or extreme anger, somebody's blocking something that's real important to you that you can't live without. Or if you're depressed, you've lost something that you think that you can't live without. That's what creates that, sometimes that depression, setting aside that which is uh, physiological, brought on by our, our chemistry. And so we often love less important things more and more important things less. 
And if you love anything more than God, you harm yourself, the object of your love, and the world around you, and you end up deeply dissatisfied. I, I, so I kind of went through a, a list of things. See if you can uh, relate to any of these. If you love your children more than God, which a lot of parents do, if you love your children more than God, you will either be too controlling and drive them away or too compliant and enable them to be irresponsible because you're going to do too much for them. If you love your spouse or romantic partner more than God, you will either be too angry when they fail to give you the affection you need or too afraid of their anger and displeasure to speak the truth to them. You see the, see the extremes we run to? If you love making money more than God, you will exploit your employees. Your family life and health will take a hit and any social justice concerns will be trivialized or ignored. See, the problem isn't that you need to love your children or spouse or career less, but that you need to love God more in relationship to those things. If you learn to love God as your greatest source of joy, hope, and consolation, then things begin to fall into their proper order and you won't overprotect them or overexpect from them, and you will see them as gifts from God and pointers to God, deepening your enjoyment of them. In other words, you won't, your joy won't terminate on, on the relationship. It will roll on up to God who, is, who has given that relationship to you as a gift uh, from him and, and just a dim glimpse of what you can have in him. And you can use that as an opportunity of not just thanksgiving, but adoration of the amazing God. And so out of this emotional health, here's the next one, we will become skilled at forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. So as I'm kind of, if I'm working through all the junk in my life, this is what it should look like. I should be really, really good at this. Did you hear me? I mean, I should be really skilled at forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust if I'm dealing with the junk in my life. I should really be good at relationships. Christians should really be good at relationships if, we, if we're walking in vital union and communion with our Savior. And so, I gave you a whole slew of verses there, but let me walk you through this, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. It only takes one to forgive. Did you know that? And so the forgiveness has to do with the past. It, only, it, it takes two to reconcile. That has to do with the present. Reconciliation is a two-way street. You can only take care of your side of the street, but take care of your side of the street. Whether you're the offender or the offendee, the Bible says make the move towards them. But you can't control what, how they're going to respond or whatever. And, and it takes time and performance before you can risk trusting again. That has to do with the future. Does that make sense? So, so you can forgive without ever reconciling, but you need to make an effort to reconcile, but you can still forgive. But even if you do reconcile, that doesn't mean you're going to trust them because trust, once it's violated, has to be reestablished and re-earned through time and performance. Does that make sense? So there's this really healthiness to our relationships. True love forgives the most, 
but condones, but condones the least. You're going to forgive, but you're not going to enable dysfunction and abuse and hurt. And you're going to become healthy. So, all of this is to say, and we're going to transition to the next section, all of this to say you are not fully in the dot at the bottom of your soul until you feel and face a longing in your soul that nothing in this world can satisfy. That's the whole book of Ecclesiastes. We did that study this last summer. We were made for God, and so even the absolute absolutely best possible created things cannot give us the infinite joy that only God can give us. So if you want to grow, this is kind of the marker of health, so being still, as I'm working through all my junk, here's how I know that I'm really a healthy person. How would you know that if you're very healthy? By the way, there's a lot of really dysfunctional Christians in our culture today, and they're not very healthy, and I've been a part of unhealthy churches. So what is health? I think health is that I should be growing in my capacity to love God and love others. And that's going to come out of an experience of his love for me. It always starts out of an experience of his love for me. So are you experiencing his love? Are you basking in the reality of his love? That's the next point. That's where we go. We go into this idea of, of beholding. What does it mean to behold? Behold. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, what in the world does it mean to behold? Real quick, do that. So what do you guys think? You guys kind of looked at each other with a kind of a blank look on your face when you asked that question, didn't you? It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know either. Why does he ask us to do these things? <laughs> Here's what behold means. It means to contemplate. It means to savor. It means to be captivated. Yeah, I mean, look at the word, be hold. It's not that you are getting a hold of something, but it is getting a hold on you. That's the idea. It begins to get a hold on you. And notice what is getting a hold on you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of, of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So from be still, dealing with my junk, to now I'm going to begin to behold the glory of the Lord. Um, we go to California in the summer months, actually just for one week. It's not, it sounded like I went away for the whole summer. But, uh, but when we go over there, one of the interesting things there when we're in Oceanside is that as the sun is setting, everybody will crowd the beach so they can see what? So they can watch the sunset. It's, it's breathtaking. You're beholding the sun setting. I still think that we have... Uh, some really beautiful sunsets here in the desert. It's quite, quite captivating. And so it's something that we all do. It's just, the Bible's just saying that when we behold the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, that's what, that's what transforms our lives. That's what brings wholeness. Uh, we will be beholding uh, Larry Fitzgerald making some phenomenal catches on Monday Night Football 
this, this Monday night. I don't know who they're playing, but, uh, but there's a bit of beholding that goes on when they have all the analysts out there and they analyze different plays and the players and all of that stuff. So they, they, what are they doing? They're beholding. When you watch uh, the Food Channel and you watch maybe that's, uh, that, that one show where it says the best thing I've ever eaten or something like that. Have you guys ever seen that one? Don't watch that late at night, okay? <laughs> because you'll be wanting to go out and find that food. But, uh, but that's all beholding. He's telling us to behold the glory of the Lord. It is beholding. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. It is beholding the glory of Christ. It is beholding the glory of Christ. We become whole. It is in the beholding of the glory of Christ we become whole. Seeing and savoring and showing Christ is the heart of mental health. Now, it's interesting, he said, here, unveiled face, he's, he's talking about Moses. When he came down off the mountain, he had to veil his face because it freaked out the people after he had been in the very presence of God. But in Exodus thirty-three twenty, it's one of your cross-references there, God said to Moses, man cannot see me and live, and it was because our sinfulness and God's holiness, it would destroy us. John 1.14, when you head into the New Testament, this is what John says, and the word, that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And so that we know that through the gospel, our access to the Father is a blood-bought gift by the Son. And so it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And in fact, a few verses before that, 4, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it actually tells us that lostness is blindness to the beauty and the glory of Christ. If you have yet to see and be seized by who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. And it's actually saying that's a sign of lostness. And it actually says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So John Owen put it this way, no one will ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter. In other words, he's talking heaven who doth not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. Now listen to me. You were created to enjoy the riches of his glory. That's why you draw air into your lungs. This is what your heart longs for more than anything else, whether you realize it or not. And this is the greatest revelation of God to us. It's his son, Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Next point in your notes, beholding his glory is to have our hearts enabled by the Holy Spirit to sense his presence in communion and interaction with him. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, Paul makes that very clear in that. He talks about having Christ dwell in our hearts, that we'd be strengthened in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts and we'd be rooted and established in his love and know the height, depth, width, length of his love. So, so this idea of communion and interaction with God, it's not just having an opinion that God is holy and gracious, it's in some abstract way, but having a sense of the beauty and the glory of his holiness and graciousness on the heart, changing everything about us. Came across an interesting quote here this last week in my studies. And uh, it's, a, it's a quote by Augustine, and then I was reminded this morning of C.S. Lewis's uh, a great quote here. 
And uh, this is where the, the writer here is just uh, quoting Augustine, says, we were made for God and so nothing can give us the ultimate joy that, that God can. Listen to this quote from Augustine. All things are precious because all are beautiful, but what is more beautiful than he? So, so anytime you've looked at something on, on this planet, you go, wow, that's beautiful. He says, yep, that's beautiful. There's no doubt about it, but not as beautiful as he is. Strong they are, but what is stronger than he? If you seek for anything better, you will do wrong to him and harm to yourself by preferring to him that which he made when he would willingly give himself to you. Uh, the idea there is that we tend to choose and find greater satisfaction in created things over and above the creator when he has given himself to us. And he's basically saying you harm yourself when you love anything more than God. Now listen to this quote. This is, uh, I thought about it this morning. I wanted to add it to this study because I think it's, it's what C.S. Lewis says. Now listen to me. If, you, if you've not been listening, listen to this quote. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What is he saying? He's saying that we make a big deal about something in creation, relationships, or making money, or cars, or homes, or any number of things, and he's saying, are you kidding me? That's a mud puddle in comparison to the Caribbean cruise that God has for us in knowing him and walking with him. Pretty, pretty fascinating. That's the idea of, of really understanding this beholding. Here's the next point on your notes. Beholding his glory is to find Christ more desirable, beautiful, and satisfying in himself than anything in this world. I gave you a ton of verses there. I guess not a ton, but three of my favorite. It's Philippians uh, 3.8 where he says, everything is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ. Psalm 27.4, are you guys familiar with that? Paul, uh, or David runs the full gamut of issues that are happening in his life, even if armies surround him and are trying to destroy him, or even if his own family abandons him. This is what he said, if I have this one thing, I know I'm okay. If I can gaze at the beauty of the Lord, what is he doing? He's beholding. He's reflecting, he's thinking about all that he has in Christ and, and he's talking about this relationship he has with God. And then Psalm 63.3 talks about his steadfast love being better than life. So it is a kind of prayer and interaction with God in which we are not simply coming to him to get from him, and, and certainly we do that, we, we get forgiveness and needs met and blessing, but rather to be with him, to be with him, not just to get from him, but to be with him, finding who he is and what he has done for us is satisfying, enjoyable, comforting, and strengthening. Another quote from John Owen, he says, if the beauty and glory of Christ does not capture our imaginations, dominate our waking thoughts, and fill our hearts with longing and desire than something else will. Last point. Beholding his glory is applying, oh, that's not the last point, second to last point. 
Beholding his glory is applying the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you specific to where your heart is most restless. So when you are being still, you're kind of working through the junk, you're in touch with what's going on in your life, you're fully in the dot, and now you begin to behold, you're wanting to apply the specific truths of who Jesus is to your heart's restlessness. That's what's going on here. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not just some shallow, flowery platitude of wishful thinking. I mean, when, when I come alongside of someone and say, hey, God's with you, he loves you, that's just not kind of nice talk to make them feel better. He's with them. He loves them. There's a reality of his existence in our life that we can experience. That's why he says in Psalm 34, 18, that he's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's close to you when you're brokenhearted. There's a reality to his presence that we can experience during difficult times. Another verse uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. He's a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. Show of hands, how many have experienced that? When you needed comforting, you had a sense of his comforting of you. It's just like, oh my goodness. And he comforted you so much that you were able to in turn comfort others with the same comfort that you had received from him. That's what he's talking about here. So I kind of went through this and I was thinking, I'm anxious and afraid when I forget his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power. So when I'm, when I'm anxious and afraid, I need to begin to apply his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power to that anxiousness and fearfulness. I'm unforgiving and resentful when I forget his mercy and forgiveness towards me. I'm envious and, and covet when I forget the wealth and the riches of what I have in him. I feel all alone and that no one understands when I forget that Jesus is with me and fully understands and will never, ever leave me or forsake me. See, there's a difference between being discouraged and being in despair. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to have sorrow. But if you're in despair, it's because his love is just a concept. It's not a reality. His power is just a concept, not a reality. His presence with you is just a concept. It's not a reality. And that's why beholding silence and solitude is one of those moments where we can begin to get a get a hold on that, better yet, it gets a hold on us and we begin to experience him in ways that we've never experienced him before. Beholding his glory is seeing Jesus give to you the very thing your heart most wants from your counterfeit gods or God. Let me end with a story here and then we're gonna prepare our hearts for communion and this will kind of sum, sum it up here, Jane's story. Jane had the misfortune of being born beautiful even in childhood, she saw the power that she could wield with her physical attractiveness, and at first she used her beauty to manipulate others, but eventually others used it to manipulate her. She came to feel that she was powerless and invisible unless some man was in love with her. She could not bear to be alone, and as a result, she was willing to remain in relationships with men who were abusive. Why did she endure such treatment? She had come to look to men for the kind of deep affirmation and acceptance 
that only God can provide. And as a result, she became a slave to love. She once said that men were her alcohol. Only if I was on a man's arm could I face life and feel good about myself. Jane finally got her life back when she went to a counselor who rightly pointed out that she had been looking to men for her identity, for her salvation. Instead, the counselor proposed she should get a career and become financially independent as a way of building up her self-esteem. Jane agreed wholeheartedly that she needed to stand on her own two feet economically, but resisted the advice about self-esteem. She said, I was being advised to give up a common female idolatry and take on a common male idolatry, but I didn't want my self-worth to be dependent upon career success any more than on men. I wanted to be free. How did she do it? She came across Colossians 3, where the Apostle Paul writes, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. She came to realize that neither men, nor career, nor anything else should be her life or identity. What mattered was not what men thought of her or career success, but what Christ had done for her and how he loved her. So when she saw a man who was interested in her, she would silently say in her heart toward him, you may turn out to be a great guy and maybe even my husband, but you cannot be my life. Only Christ is my life. As she began to do this more and more through habits of grace, spiritual disciplines, it gave her the ability to set boundaries, make good choices, and to love a man for himself and not simply to use men to boost her self-image. So here's my question for you. What counterfeit God are you needing to do that with? All of us are just like Jane. The only difference is our counterfeit God. Is it money, romance, career, Children, success, sports, health, exercise, politics. Let's pray. So we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So Father, the apex of your glory is the good news, it's the gospel that you have reconciled us to yourself by sending your son Jesus to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. And so God, that's what we do this morning. I pray for those that maybe have yet to do that, to repent and believe, to turn from their sin and turn towards you this morning. God, we, we give you our lives. Prepare our hearts now for communion and for this time of of silence before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. There's three stations. Come up and grab communion elements. We're not gonna play any music. We're just gonna do a time of silence. Take it back to your seat, sit, reflect, ask God what he wants to speak to you during this time, and then I'll walk us through the process.
So, Father, we, we are so addicted to noise and hurry that sometimes even sitting in a time of silence, it's, it's almost troubling for us. But, Lord, let us, let us learn how to be still and behold your beauty and glory. It's one of the favorite things I enjoy doing is just enjoying his presence. It's the best thing we have in our lives. So as I sit and I'm still and I let him deal with the junk and I tell him my heart and share my feelings and my hurts and stuff that's going on, I allow him to meet me right there where I'm at and I begin to behold his beauty. And let's just take a few moments. Let's do that. Let me kind of walk you through this as, we, as, I, as I pray, similar to what I will pray in times of beholding him. God, there's nothing greater that you could do for us than to reconcile us to yourself. And there's nothing greater that you could give to us than the gift of yourself. That your son willingly paid a terrible price in order for us to gain access to you, that our access to you, that our being able to have relationship with you, us being able to pray and interact with you is a blood-bought gift. And these elements that we're about to take this morning represent your broken body and shed blood for us. So God, you, you are the love we have been looking for our whole life. No married love or friend love or parent love can compare to your love. And the more our heart is ravished by your love, the less it will be held hostage to lesser, lesser loves and lesser things. God, may we be reminded that if someone is wise and powerful as you, loves us, gave his life for us and promised to never leave us or forsake us, why would we ever be anxious or jealous or envious or bitter or despairing or hopeless when we have you? Lord, teach us how to be still and behold your beauty, to find deep satisfaction in you. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this represents my body which is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. That same night, he held up the cup and said, this is my blood which is shed for you. This is the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Pretty spectacular what we have in him. Pretty amazing that his son came to this earth to rescue us and to give us fullness of life. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but 
Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Hey, don't forget, water baptism class right up here to my left, your right. God bless you.